If you'd like to land more video production gigs, just visit canadavideocompanies.ca, Canada's leading video production directory. Just click Add a Listing to get started. That's canadavideocompanies.ca. It's episode 7 of How I Got This Gig. Today, story editor Dora Fong, an absolute expert at her craft, joins me, and she shares some amazing insights on working in the factual reality TV genre. I'm very excited about having a writer on the show, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to How I Got This Gig, I'm Dean Rainey. Today, Dora Fong joins me for a conversation about how she got her gig as a story editor. Actually, Dora has just been promoted to series producer, so congratulations to her on that, but I wanted to focus our talk on story editing, and in particular, her work on such shows as Property Brothers, Masters of Flip, and Crime Docs Cold Blood, and 72 Hours True Crime. Dora is another former colleague of mine. She was my associate producer on the first documentary series that I directed, uh, Different Yet the Same, and we hadn't really seen each other for many, many, many years, so this interview was a great way for us to catch up with each other, and she has done some amazing things since I last worked with her. I really think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. As I mentioned, Dora is an absolute expert at her craft, and even better, she's able to articulate what story editing is all about and the choices that one makes while doing the job, and what you're ultimately going for when you're trying to break story in the factual-slash-reality genre. So you will definitely learn something from my talk with Dora. This episode of How I Got This Gig is sponsored by Videotwins.com, helping people make better videos. Check out Videotwins.com for tips, tricks, and resources to improve the quality of your video productions. And Videotwins.com is also the home base of the How I Got This Gig podcast. And could you do me a solid? Could you make sure you've subscribed to this podcast and then rate and review it over on iTunes? We're hoping to somehow land on the new and noteworthy section of iTunes and every rating and review helps. So now on to my conversation with story editor Dora Fong. There's some gold in here, Jerry. Gold! Can you hear? Yeah. So they're boom mics. You don't have to be too close, but yeah, that, like that's great. Would you like me to do this? That sounds. <laughs> it's audio, so we can't see that. No. Oh. <laughs> so this is great. Thanks for seeing me, Dora. It's been like six years. No, it's been more, longer it's than been that. It's been more. Like, I think I saw you in Hong Kong years ago. I think you You're came right. over when I was living there, and you came over for vacation. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nine. I can tell you that's oh, nine. Wow. So that is, uh, what, eight years back? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, two years before you decided to move home. Yeah. Yeah, that's Great. right. So a lot has happened. Yes. What's new with you? I guess I can't ask <laughs> no, that fine. I'll put that in the intro. Okay. It's about you. Spotlight is on you. All right. So you just got a new, you just got a promotion? Yes. Well, I, um, uh, I was a freelance story editor for most of my last five years, and um, so now I'm, uh, I just uh, switched up to be a series producer. So you're on staff, or you're just on a show? Just on a show. Um, so I'm series producing the show I was previously story editing on. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a bigger task, it's a bigger machine, and yeah, it's, a, it's an adjustment. <laughs> Moving on up. Yeah. So talk to me, okay, what's a story editor? What does a story editor do? Um, I'll be honest, a story editor is a relatively new role in television. Um, I mean, in the sense that I, it wasn't around when I first started in the business, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but it's now become standard for a lot of post-production um, workflow. Um, and I think a story editor sort of, and otherwise might be called a post-producer in other arenas. Right. It's really a bridge between the producer and editorial content uh, and the editor, the picture editor. Um, but I'm also a big believer in anybody that's good at their role can also often 
you know, in a smaller crew can make do without those positions. So a great editor may not need a story editor. Um, you know, a great series producer that, you know, has the, the time to do it may also not need a story editor. Um, so I, that's why I think it's a newer role um, in the industry in that it's, uh, it's something to sort of help facilitate, you know, by the time you're in a factory mode and that you're doing a lot of episodes outputting at the same time. You know, so on a, on a small documentary project, you may not need a story editor because as a director, also as a producer, also as the person who did the research, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily need a story editor right. on. Right. What you might need is a second set of eyes and ears to give you some objective, you know, criticism or opinion or fine tuning, and that's where a story editor might be helpful even in such a small project. So we're, we are, just some context here, we are at Cineflix offices yes. in Toronto, one of the largest, I got to think, uh, reality TV program producers. They do drama now oh. as well um, for digital. I mean, they have Netflix um, airing some of their stuff as well. I mean, it is international company, that's for sure. Full disclosure, I was here before, six years ago, the year that we moved back, came in, had an interview with your manager of production or supervising pr- production, uh, Poppy or... Pixie. P- Pixie. Yes. Pixie. Had a great interview. She loved that I was an editor and I could write. Said, we'll get you on a show. Never heard from her again. <laughs> and I think that's it. It's often, I think, um, once you're in the television, especially in this particular market, it's so often about shorter contracts. So it's yeah. who's available at that moment with a job. We, we have an opening right now that we're looking to fill. So, so much of it is about timing and opportunity. And unfortunately, sometimes if you know there's not a, you know updated resume or someone's not top of mind, they often get missed in that search um, for a great candidate. Well, that happened to me. But anyways... It's good to be back here under these circumstances. No, it was fine. I mean, I, I thought, well, oh, that's interesting that she was so gung-ho, she was going to get me on a show, and then even when I followed up, I, I didn't hear anything back. So I thought, okay, well, that's, that's different that they don't reply back and say, okay, no, sorry, the position's been full, or we found another. We don't have enough shows. Anyways, moving on. And, I can, and I can to... tell you that in my new role, I am often guilty of that. Oh! Because, um, because my email has exploded from previously... Now, story editing has the real luxury of being you're very focused on just post. You're not right. worrying about how that footage got into the mix. Right. You're not worried about how those things came to be. You just go, well, these are the 10 pieces of you know, things that I have to work with to make a show together. What are the ways and what are the tools I have to reinvent the story? But you know, now that I'm serious producing, my email has blown up from, you know, 20 emails. That's very minutia, workflow, you know, uh, within our own company to hundreds of emails a day that I can barely manage. So I, that's, that's challenging for me. That's new. How do you um, like that? I mean, is it taking you away from the creative a bit or... It's, I think it's a different task. You're managing all those things, and you're, you know, a lot of times the email where previously as a story editor, I am trying to take on as much ownership of that as much as I can when you're trying to series produce and trying to manage 11 episodes at the same time from the previous block, and now there's another 11 coming down the pipeline in two months, then it's, you know, psychologically, you're sort of keeping 20 stories in your head of various times. So it's really about delegating, making sure the information flows from one person to the next, and weighing in creatively about certain things. But also, you know, and somewhere in the in your brain, you still have to find the creative room to go, how can we make the next block better? And what are the meetings or people that I need to involve to try to improve upon that, the next block? Okay. Well, we're going to dive deeper into that a little bit later. I want to go back to the very beginning, the very, very beginning. You went to, maybe this isn't the beginning, but you went to Ryerson. I did. What did you study at Ryerson? I studied radio and television, otherwise known as Rye High, by the way. Rye High. That's what they... (laughs) Why do they call it Rye High? Because it literally is so old and building that it, it looks like a high school because it was, I remember like locker doors like you would in a high school, oh. sort of that, you know, terrible pebble stone kind of a, you know, texture on the walls. And it's like this terrible yellow lime. It's not lime green. It's like a muted, you know, regardless, you you throw up. That's the kind <laughs> of color that was there. So I that's Rye High. But, but you know what? I, I'm very thankful because I made lifelong friends there. But also there's a lot of... Um, 
people in the industry there and you really do get exposed you don't you often don't appreciate what you were what you had until 10 years later once you have the knowledge you know that old adage that's right. like you know the the more you know the less you know it's now the more i know i realize how little i knew then and how little i was able to appreciate all the things that were exposed so to be able to do non-linear editing to non-linear audio editing all those things were brand new to us and we just thought oh okay it's part of another course why do i have to sign up in the middle of the night to do that i didn't know that that's middle of the night editing is in that's, fact industry normal. Yeah, yeah exactly so it's like oh this is terrible that i have to line up for an 8 a.m slot in the morning no that's prime time good for you yeah so it was uh, the experience was very good for you because you got great uh, experience in sort of an academic way, but then you made great connections too? Yes, that's true. I mean, I I think um, made great connections in that. It's true. I mean, all those people, all those connections are more fruitful in the last 10 years now that everybody's grown to give you those connections and everybody's, uh, you know, have that you know, sometimes it's just nice to also have other people that you know on an intimate way as a friend to kind of go, hey, what's going on at your work? How do you deal with that situation? Right. Even it's not necessarily just about someone giving you jobs. It's also just about someone else going, hey, you know what? Like, um, I'm dealing with a similar situation. And this is how I handled it. Or, you know what? This, um, this is something to stay away from because I've had experience in this and it does not go down well. Or, you know, some strategy to resolve something um, besides any other, you know, connections of hey, I don't have a job for you right now, but my friend, I know that they're crewing up. Just those little leads for you to take that yeah. um, extra step to go, I can do I can do better, or oh, I can make that connection, or I can do some legwork in that department, as opposed to a great big sea of all these productions are happening, I have no idea how to get in. Did you work while you went to university? Um, I don't know. Did, did I work while I went to mm. university? I think you did, right? You were... I, I, I believe that's how we met, was yeah. I was trying to finish university. I don't know while how you I, did it. I well, I, I think I barely did it. Was what ended up happening. Yeah. I mean, when we worked together, I was I think part time at university. Like, Are you? I think or no, it was just after. Maybe it was just after. I didn't have the stress or the workload that you did, but you were like doing full on studies, and then I think you were in the office every day. I think I ended up being, I mean, I think I was in my third year or fourth year, and I think because of that opportunity, we should talk about how we met each other. Okay, go ahead. Unless yeah. it's in your intro. No. Well, you can do a version, and I can do a version. We'll Perfect. see. Which we'll, one? It's like the Neely White game. It's like, let's see who's accurate. Somewhere in the middle of it all <laughs> is the truth. Yeah. It's, it's very Rashomon. <laughs> um, I, we, we worked together at Fairchild. Yep. Um, which is a Chinese television yeah. company in the multicultural city of Toronto. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's a really great breeding ground for a lot of young upstarts, which I would say both of, is it fair to say both of us were? Yeah, I would you, think so. You yeah. have been there some time. I mean, you, I mean, you achieved like really the impossible of being <laughs> someone who didn't speak Chinese in right. any language. I mean, like you didn't speak Chinese natively and that you were working there full time yeah. as a staff member. I was, yeah. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Hey, I made great connections that are still with me today that I still like re use as resources and friends as right. well. So it was great. Yeah, you, I think, you came on to work on a show that I was doing, directing. Was that the first time you were working? It was the, the Heritage Canada one yeah. with Echo. So it was, I mean, it was, um, it was a 10 same. part. It was a 10 part, you know, tiny interstitial duration pieces seven minutes or something yeah, yeah but i mean it was very i think it was very lofty goals um you know going into and i think it was you know you did a beautiful job <laughs> lots of mistakes made lots of mistakes you know what i don't actually i don't know what the overall budget was but i know that for what we had and the tools that we had i think it, it worked out really well and i you know and for me i, I mean the the biggest thing was like i got to work with bill cameron of cbc yeah, yeah, true so i mean to work with sometimes it's not even about the project and how lofty it is but if there's one aspect of that that makes it worthwhile i mean it was working with bill cameron a respected journalist a professional and really just by virtue of working with him failing him at many times oh, but constantly. <laughs> but even in those failings you learn so much because you know he's expecting a particular level and just trying to get there you go okay that's that's the gold standard that's where i should be and i am not there yet right it's knowing what you don't know did you know that we were nominated for best uh, best documentary on a specialty channel. I did not know that. Yeah, I found that out two, a year and a half later when I was in Hong Kong. I got an email. We lost to Discovery Channel, and I'm fine with that. That That's, is that I is good like, company. What? what I mean, yeah. what? Where was that? Uh, cable TV Awards. Oh, yeah. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. 
I'm going to put that on my resume. <laughs> Go for it, yeah. <laughs> so after you worked uh, on that documentary series with me, and then you moved over to the commercial uh, production department there at the company, right? You worked with Chi and CC, and we had yeah. that super team for a while. Yes. That was the funnest year of Wait, my production life, I now, think. Now, are you sure you didn't, the commercial department didn't start and then oh you're no, right that happened because we got the documentary series and with all the money we got the good camera and then and the good, good editing, editing system, system. <laughs> and then when we were done the documentary se- series they were like the only people who know how to use this is Dora and Dean so <laughs> they gotta stick around and so we went into the commercial production department right. and we were just our own little isolated team it was good it was I mean, fun yeah, and I mean, imagine like a, I mean, I mean, there were some things that were challenging, but I mean, it was it was fun to be just given like here's a small, tiny little budget, and just you know, the clients didn't usually have the savvy of you know what can we do. I mean, now I look at that and go, man, somebody on YouTube can totally do that and a much better job, a little movie, a little you know gimbal that would make it so much better. But I just it was really a luxury to go, yeah, we you know here's here's a budget and here's a client, and really you know when we really we just did whatever we wanted sure. to. And but that people let us and that there's like there's there's some for whatever small place that Fairchild was it's a small TV company with like very rudimentary equipment that we could do whatever we wanted to and nobody had to sign off and you didn't have to answer like your notes or your clients and yeah nobody really gave us you know heck no. for trying new things or I've had a 20 year plus career and that probably ranks up there as the best year one of the best year for just experience and learning and for good times you know, we would help each other on each yeah, other's yeah, commercials, yeah. and we would come in, and we would have dinner together, and we would go watch movies and all kinds of stuff. And I thought, wow, this is this is a special time. May not be replicated. How long were you? How long were you there? One year. If I'm exactly one. No year. offense. It felt like forever. I know. Like I, like I look back at those years. I I know it felt like forever, but it wasn't that long. You're right. And and after and I had like amazing opportunities like. Um, uh, multi-camera directing for the telethon right. so I was working for Fairchild proper as well doing those things which was also insane like who would let like someone that just came out of university to do multi-cam switching I, know. Um, I don't know if you heard this fantastic story of me trying to do a three-hour telethon and I was and that also that a director would be switching her own show but I did um, except oh. for that time when I put black bars over the beauty queens um, okay. no. <laughs> who were making their appeal and I couldn't get the black graphic oh, no. off their face. So it's, it wasn't just like a tiny one that was like, you know, their protect, you know, witness, witness <laughs> reprote- uh, protection program. It was full two thirds of the screen was covered with black and I oh. couldn't get it off the switcher. I didn't know how to, I pressed something. I didn't know what I pressed. And then you could just hear the steps of Alan running down, Alan, our technical director, running down the hallway, trying to rescue me because I obviously didn't know how to fix it. And that was the live show. So yeah. So. <laughs> and did you keep your job after that one or? Surprisingly, yes. <laughs> and so I didn't switch out of that until at a certain point I felt like I had done what I could right. given that you know, Chinese was still a small market and Chinese was also not my most creative language. Right. It is my first language. English is my second language, but that was not my most creative language. So I felt like I needed to break out of that. And, you know, I knew there was a, there was a cap to the growth that I could do there because nobody else was really moving out of that environment. And I wanted to be, instead of a big fish in a small pond, I needed to be a small fish in a big pond. So I started working in uh, a breakthrough on a wedding show, um, that some of my friends, um, who I was living with, and they were roommates, but some of my friends are like, we're working on a show right now, and you know, it's there's no. I was like, I need some connections. I need to just be whatever you need me to be a right. driver, a runner, whatever it is. But I need to be on the right kind of productions, yes. and I'm working on small things. So I was a PA uh, on a breakthrough show. Um, I was a PA for maybe a couple of weeks, and I thought, okay, this is what's logging out. I'm gonna king even less money than I was before. I didn't think that was possible. I'm you know, up to my eyeballs in debt, but this is the right <laughs> environment I needed to be. I could see that this market and this kind of production was the next step for me. So I said, I'll take whatever I can do. And you know, I'm basically working for free at that point, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do that. So then I was PA for a couple of weeks. Um, and then they, I was very blessed that whoever gave me that opportunity said, you know, I think she can do more. And I mean, it made sense. My skill set was like, I had, we had been directing, we had been editing, right, we had right. been doing all those things. And I went straight to PA and that's a leap, I guess, when I say it out loud, it wasn't in my head. I knew that those people have never worked with me before. They've never met me. Why would they presume I can do anything but move gear right. and get coffee? 
But, you know, I felt like, well, that's got to be where I start and prove myself again, like I did the last two years. So I did. And I, and I surprisingly, I did. In that sense, I think someone was looking and they wanted to fill a role. They said, well, we need someone to, you know, help us be um, a researcher. I was like, and we think you're, you're overqualified for the PA job that you're doing right now. So why don't you, you know, take a, you know, take a run at this? And, and then the director and I went and, you know, did some scouts and did some, you know, did some episodes of, um, I think it was called Exchanging Vows, I think. Um, and so that gave me, it just helped me build my resume right away from, from PA to unit coordinator, which was a very glorified title for a PA at that point, <laughs> um, to researcher and then associate producer. So I took, in the beginning, I took a lot of um, freelance jobs in independent production that um, had strange titles that really meant, you're the catch-all and you're the bottom of the rung, can you do it all? And you just say, yes, I can, and then you figure out how to do it later. So you found yourself in reality TV. Were they they were reality shows, or what were they? Reality, exactly? some yeah, there was reality. So there was a wedding show, and then there was a um, wedding show, a makeup show, and then there was also one that was a real estate show. Why do you think Canada is such a hotbed for real estate shows? Have you have you noticed that? I mean, even when I was in the states and I put on Home and Garden, it's all made in Toronto. Yes, and I and I don't think that was the case. I have worked on. I I like to think that that was one of the earliest real estate right. shows because um, that was when I worked on that. That's got to be oh five oh three kind of thing. Like that was early days, and that was one of the first real estate shows. And it was only around that time that there started to be multiple offers. I mean, real estate. I mean, the, what's there to talk about in real estate except buying and selling? People we used to underbid. That wasn't this idea of flipping and this idea right. of you know. Um, multiple offers and a hot real estate market is really more like a current, like in the last 10, 15 years. That was the day when I, you know, you could buy houses for 200,000 and that was, you know, a lot of money already. So this, I mean, the markets have changed. And I think because we were already doing a lot of uh, home and garden shows at that time, we used to do a lot of lifestyle shows like the Debbie Travis shows and the Candace Olsen shows. So it made sense that we would start pivoting to, you know, things that were flipping kind of thing. And, um, I think the U.S. market had more lofty ideas about doing more dramas and stuff. They weren't, and they were doing either going doing that or straight into reality shows. So this idea of sort of a lifestyle, um, factual hybrid, I think, came to be from the U.K. and from Canada, um, just a necessity of we were, those were the cheaper options shows that we were producing to offer to American broadcasters. And so we filled a lot of that airtime for them of, as cheaper shows to make. So you, when you're a story editor, is most of your work done, it's done in the post-production then? It is, although in shows that can afford it, they will often be involved uh, in, uh, not pre-production, but in production as well. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, I think in, you know, in that idea that, um, yes, I mean, I, I try to insert myself whenever I can into production, <laughs> and you know, and producers that have allowed me that breath will you know, uh, let me participate, but um, yeah, it's, it's um, you often weigh in to just give a, how will this cut? Because I think oftentimes when you're in production, it's a matter of what are the resources available, who's available on that day, which location is available on that day. It's a lot of logistics. And logistics can really mire the creativity and how something will end up in the edit. So, you know, it's often good to have someone that comes from the edit and go, okay, I appreciate all that effort to get one extra thing, but you should know that in the edit, that might get cut or that's going to be a nanosecond. And the thing that we really need that might help some of your logistic things is that... I don't need 20%, I don't need 80% of what you're asking for. Maybe just ask permission to get a 20% of that. And that's all we need to sell this idea. So I think that's, that kind of, those kind of hybrid conversations are often good. How much are you guys, uh, I don't want to use this term, but manufacturing drama on these sets? Is there some, you know, coaching, setting up scenarios? Now, I, I, I hate to break it for people is that there is often more than one take. I feel like when I read a lot of articles about like Home and Garden, it's like, they do multiple takes. They have I to know, come in the door multiple so I'm like, well, yeah. that's... Um, but I mean, at the same time, I and this is from a lazy producer's perspective, is I mean, oftentimes we work with what's there because it's too hard. It takes too much effort to manufacture things. Sure. So when we're casting, we're looking for people that have an interesting story already. Because if you can front load that that work and go what are you you know what's your personality about what's interesting about you then you can sort of start crafting that what this episode might be about 
And I, I will often say, as an like as someone in the edit, it's easier to make, a, as, especially these days where everybody's much more tolerant of bad camera work because they're used to right. YouTube things. That it's better to have it happen for real and have it messy and the cameras dropped and pointed at the wrong direction, but the real audio that went with that scene, as opposed to trying to cut it with, uh, as my friend calls it, was a um, close-up masterpiece theater right uh, and creating those things because it it doesn't play it doesn't I nobody buys it right it comes out of yeah like I find as I'm watching out. those cuts it's like ah yeah. it's a little forced it's a little and it feels manufactured and sometimes it wasn't like it just feels manufactured right. um, that we will often just take it out because it especially in our format where it's home and garden those things there was a time period where we really did do a lot of that that it, I think it's so easy it's so it looks and feels dated really quickly the minute you go to those tropes. Having said that, we do rely on it sometimes for like an act break or something like sure. that. Um, but really, we take it from a genuine moment um, because otherwise everything else just feels like a little bit of real tension from a person as opposed to one that wasn't there at all always plays better. That's that's my subjective take on it. I think that's a good philosophy. What are the biggest challenges then with trying to you know have a story arc and just working with all this? raw material that necessarily isn't story driven it's like renovation driven I mean there are some built in there are some built in things but we try to cast that we try to do that in our casting process really it starts way out there I mean, you know, when you're looking at so many applications, definitely, you're just looking for, you know, what's different about this personality? And some of it, we try to layer it, right? As many as many aspects that we can follow along as possible. Some of it is in personality. You know, is somebody always going to be a little um, argumentative? Or maybe someone's always like, they're, they're really finicky about the small stuff. They're, you know, it's not just an open concept is enough, but is the ceiling beam, like all those... All the, every, any time they push back is always interesting because you're hearing a real conversation of what they care about. Then we also layer it in, okay, these houses themselves, what are the inherent challenges that would anybody would be faced by, whether they're a really agreeable personality or someone that has, you know, they're very picky about certain things. And then, you know, you, you look for other layers of, you know, within, within the pair themselves, will they, you know, will they have their you know, built-in conflicts, will they have struggled to find a happy medium, even amongst a couple themselves, like sometimes they're, you know, usually couples. So sure. it gives us many opportunities to chase to kind of go, what's going to end up fleshing out in the end? And sometimes it may be just of those three things, only one predominant thing plays, but it's always good to have as many layers of that out there as possible so that, you know, by the time you get to the edit, you could be choosy. Are you watching everything that's been filmed? Uh, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. As a story editor? As a story editor on a small show, um, I see almost everything. Yeah. Um, from the rushes, the raw, and that's sometimes helpful because, you know what, it's that take when they thought it wasn't rolling, but somebody was rolling and pointed down, you might get the audio that you really needed um, because somebody was speaking, you know, off, you know, uh, candidly about something. And it's like, oh, that's exactly the thought we needed. Um, and so that's really helpful. Not so on a show, for example, that had talent, that just had talent, didn't have any homeowners and subjects that um, were participating. And then there are other, and then on that kind of show, I would see everything from beginning to end. Um, you know, I not necessarily with the audio up and not in real time. Sometimes you just scrub through stuff, obviously. The old secret there, watching everything in double speed at yes. least. <laughs> and very, anybody that's done that job would know the secret hotkey, which is to get it to 1.9, because at 2.2 times as fast, you don't hear the audio anymore. Uh, so the audio scrubbing <laughs> tool is super important. Um, but I do watch everything. I mean, sometimes I'll just jump through like visuals. If, you know, my crew is out and shooting all the beauties, I wouldn't necessarily go back until I needed to. Um, but if I have a small, on a small show where I don't even have the infrastructure of an assistant editor, I do because, you know, as a control freak, which is a great thing to be when you're a story editor. I would think so. You would want to make sure, did everybody log this correctly along the way? Because if they've logged this on the wrong day, on the wrong, you know, with the wrong labeling, there might be great footage out there that I've missed. And the worst fear is always like that there was something that was, there was gold, Jerry, that there was gold <laughs> buried, mislabeled somewhere else that couldn't, that wasn't used and wasn't seen. And that's, as a story editor, that was always my worst fear is something was not seen by somebody at least once. Because if it plays once in your head, sometimes that's good enough for me to go, there might have been something there that's worth um, a double back to look again to see if that footage was there. So how did you make the transition from PA, or I know you were getting more glorified titles yes. 
but yes. still ultimately doing PA. And then you got into research. Yes. And then how did you? What was your first gig where you're like responsible for the story? I was, um, you know, often on shows where you don't have. Um, well, as a small crew, you often get to do that anyway. So later on, it's just a matter of getting the title for the thing that you're already doing. Uh, um, and I think yeah. that, I mean, that happens. I think anybody that's good at their job often have the skills to fill in for their neighboring roles. I always say this is like, if you're a great researcher, you probably, you know, are already at the skill set to be an AP. If you're a great AP, you probably have the skill set to be a director. You know, if you're a great you know, editor, you are a story editor, really, in what you're doing. Or if you're a great story editor, you may also be a great producer just by what you do. By the, by being great at what you do, um, part of that is understanding the other roles that comes in the workflow before you and after you, so that you have, you're probably able to fill in for those roles. So I was doing research, um, and I think back then researching and APing was very you know, that was just getting the credit for what I was doing. So on a show where I was the only researcher and we had no production coordinator. And so when I was doing researching and production coordinating, I was APA and I just asked for the title <laughs> to go along with it. And I think, so that was that they were trying to, you know, at first I was just, uh, I was researcher and then I was researcher and production coordinator because it was just easier to do it that way and they didn't have the budget to really hire someone to support. Right. Uh, so I said, I'll do it all, pay me twice the money um, and then give me this title. And so that's sort of how I I switched my way in. And the research is a lot of story because you're when you're researching, you're finding information, but if you know what the end goal is, then you know the bits that are the most helpful thing to do. So when I was working on some crime shows, I did some stint on crime shows. Uh -huh. um, when you're doing research, you're you're not just getting all the bits of information. You're also usually as um, a handoff document. You go, here's all the information I've got, and here they are all are for you. If I was to shape this into a story, this is how would I would shape it into a story. So in the end, when you're researching, you are trying to get those elements of where's the red herring in the story? Where's the twist and turn? Oh, that sounded like something. Let me ask a follow-up question to see if that could be made into a red herring. So you're often looking for those story things, even as a researcher. And you're handing them over as notes. As a researcher, you're kind of handing them over with, here's my take on this. On, a, on crime shows, I would often hand off an outline. Um, so really kind of broken out by acts already. So it was something for a writer, a script writer to sort of work with, um, you know, in conjunction with, you know, my producer, hand, you know, sent, um, weighing in on some notes. But yeah, you'd hand off an outline with all the bits of information. Um, but you might also hand off a full document of, here's, you know, 20 pages or 40 pages of background information right. on this case in case you wanted to look back. Um, or, you know, the phone calls that you have with people when you're chasing something. I mean, on reality shows and factual shows, I think those are different. You're just sort of sourcing information and sort of getting, you may be writing the um, the bio pack to pitch to network. So then you're maybe writing up a pitch. So when you write a pitch, oh. you are doing story stuff because yeah. that's, you know, it's like, here's the ideal situation of where this potential episode could go based on the information I know. And so in that sense to me, you're, you're doing story stuff as a researcher anyway. So as a story editor, jumping around a yes. little bit here, but um, do you edit your offline yourself or do you? No, I have, a, I have a picture editor and I'm just weighing in. And he's editing in front of you? Um, Sometimes some people do that. I prefer not to do that. So they so they sort of go off with their footage. And so sometimes I will... You've gone through the footage. You've made your own notes then? Yes. And you've made an outline and you've handed it off there's, to him. There's different ways of doing it. Some people, since some production companies, the story editor is the first one to look at all the footage and they pull out selects for the editor. And so yeah. it's sort of all put together, you know, in one timeline and sort of they're whittling it down from there. And then they uh -huh. go looking for the B-roll to cover it. Yeah. Um, in some places, um, the editor does their first pass, and then the story editor gets to do, gets to look at the information once it's cut down already. Um, and in some places, the two are happening simultaneously to kind of go, so I'll go and watch all the raw because I can't wait for the editor to have done their pass on it, but at least I know everything that's there. And then I go look and I go, oh yeah, okay, that, you know, so I think there was a little bit that was missed or no, you haven't missed anything here. Let's start from here. So I think that depends on each production company and each team and how well they work together. So aside from the pitching and the researching, is there any writing that you do in your job? Like, do you write voiceovers at all? Do you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a story editor, I wouldn't write the pitches. As a researcher, I would. Right. Yes. 
and some and then somewhere in there I was directing. Um, so in in my more recent incarnation, Wait, are we we jumping all around here. Okay, we are. So, sorry. So let's let's keep this clear for me. So you here, researched here's my resume. Her resume. <laughs> she brought her resume so she doesn't forget anything. Doesn't oh, want to leave anything out. Now okay. I'm feeling I'm like I'm interviewing for a job. I know. Well, it's payback. That's why I'm here. That's my whole scheme. <laughs> this is all payback to come here, and then I won't contact you again. Perfect. Okay. So buy me masterminds, the mom show, so I can see the transition. Your associate producer, researcher, director, researcher, field producer. Do you enjoy directing? I do, did. Do you like being on set? Yeah, I think I was um, I was directing uh, before I had kids, and that's the I mean that's a big part of why I did that transition, um, because directing is directing is really is fun, and it's you know you're on set, and uh, but it's different. It's set life. And they they're longer days. They're much longer days, um, and uh, you know you, but I, I remember really, like I remember waking up my set my set days would be maybe 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., something like that. And I would wake up three hours beforehand to do my prep for that 7 a.m. shoot because I want to be prepared. And let's, you know, and probably the night, you know, the night before after my shoot, I would, you know, write director's notes to send back to production so that they know what was coming down the line. So it really became, it's really intensive. Um, I find that easier to do when I'm on the road. So when I've been in North Carolina for a year, you know, directing something and I have no personal life, it makes that much easier to do. But now that you have a, a life and a family, I, I when when it, it made sense to transition to post production work yeah. once I started having a family because the you know your there's no unexpected emergencies usually because you know television is not saving lives necessarily but it, some people would like to, you to think it is. It, it, yes. I've been on some sets where yeah. they thought really that they were. <laughs> but I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it made the life more manageable instead of, and I wasn't tied to set times. Yeah. Um, it made it more flexible. So I could do, you know, I might still do like an eight or 10 hour day, but it might be 10 to six or, you know, it, it's just more, it was more manageable for daycare pickup and drop offs and, you know, helping my husband at home. Like, and I think it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a different kind of uh, intensity where you can finish a shoot day and go, well, that's in the can, good or bad. It's in there. There's no going back to shoot that. It's done. Where you carry the, you definitely carry home every single day of, you know, that still section in the edit is still not working right. So you aggravate over right. that particular section for days, for weeks, for, you know, and now you're showing it to network and your producer's going, ah, oh, why can't I get that section just right? What's missing? What can I, what is some new way I can invent? Can I steal an audio clip from here to smooth that out? You will, you are sort of stewing over the same episode for a much longer time, but it haunts you at night. Like it lives in your brain. You never sort of walk away from it. Right, different, different, very different, yeah. Um, were you able to overcome when you were directing this, like, you, you committed a lot to it, three hours in the morning, the night before, all of that. Were you able to get it to a point where you could say, no, I know what I'm doing, I'm confident in what I'm doing, I don't need to do all of that, I can kind of show up and, and wing it? Uh, do, or do enough prep and then... I, I find, I mean, I, I, for my style, I always found, like, if I over-prepped, I was much more relaxed on set. And if I yeah. didn't prep enough the night before when I was on set, I would be the type to not eat lunch and just kind of like stew some more and going like I, then I would be much more of a nervous wreck on set. And I found the more I could prep, the more I could play when I was on set. So like, what's a fun yeah. angle we could do for this? And what's, uh, you know, picking off more like interesting, you know, framing or, you know, like having more time to breathe if I knew what I was going in to get. Or there were times where I know, when I need to feel like before I hit a set to feel like I have done all the prep work I can do so that when I go there, I could feel like I can do anything I want. Where if I didn't feel like I did any prep work and I feel like I was, I'm caught off guard when I go on set and I was like, oh, should, could I have known that? Should I have known that? Have I exhausted all the ways I, I could have found out about these scenarios? And then I sort of you know, get distracted by my own unpreparedness going into it. Do you think your career has just moved at a, a, a sort of a normal pace up and to the right? Uh, has it been a, a natural progression from rule to rule, or did you have any times? Because we interview some people, and a, you know, a lot of times there's some hard stops in their career, right. or there's some 180s. Is it 180 or a 90-degree or so? You know, where people are reevaluating where they are, their moves, stuff like that. When you when you had the children, did you think? I don't want to go back to that. Probably once the children got a little bit older, you were like, I don't want to stay with this. Yes. <laughs> if they're anything like my kids, right? They're a lot of work. Um, I think um, 
As a parent, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, in I, I think the last few years have been actually. I, mean, I remember very specifically things were on, in my the beginning of my career. So I was, you know, PA and then research and then directing. That all felt right. That right. all felt like a, a good groove. Um, I had done some detours in terms of format in television. Very often, you're hired based on your previous experience. It's very hard to break out of the genre you're doing or the role that you're doing. So I feel like I've had I had the luxury of growing in roles, and then I force some detours to change. Um, so I was in lifestyle and factual, and it was really hard to break into crime drama, and I did make that. I forced that, and so I got to. How do did that you do that? How did you How did you prove to them that you could do? I remember going on a, I, I don't know how I found out about it, but I did, and I did as much research as I could. I think oftentimes people go into interviews and they kind of just go, here's my resume and here's what I did before. But if you're going into a genre that you've never done before, you have to have done your homework. If you are blessed with the opportunity um, to be able to get past the door and you get to the interview, you really prove yourself. I remember that first crime show, I went to the library. This is how old I am. <laughs> I went to the library and I, I thought about, I asked, Okay, if I'm interviewing for a researcher role on a crime drama, one, I was overqualified as a researcher by then. Right. So I was an AP. And you were gonna, the role was going to be a researcher. And the role was going to be a researcher. So I thought, okay, that's okay. I'll take a step back in, in terms of that, um, you know, that vertical move. I'll take a step back if it means I can access new genres and new shows. So that's no problem. I said, okay, I, you know, I'm an AP at this point and even did some maybe field stuff, um, but I'm happy to take a researcher in a crime drama role because that's a very different environment. It's harder to get into. And they, in, they agreed to, and I think that was the key to getting that foot in the door and being, getting an interview was, okay, this person is not experienced in the genre, but she's very experienced in television. So it's worth an interview. Great. So yeah. once I'm interviewed, then I then I have to make sure I prove myself. So I went and did research. I pre, you know, I thought, what would they want out of this person? They want new stories and ideas from this person. So I pre-did the work. I even though I wasn't paid for it, even though that's the work you're supposed to get paid for once you get the job, I did free work. I went and pre you know, looked up as many stories that is available to pitch um, that I would be doing as uh -huh. a job to kind of go. I can do this. And, you know, I said, these are the stories I've pre-researched. I'm sure you've done them already. Maybe you've done, but it showed I knew what kind of stories that they were looking for. I knew where to find them and that I had that skill set. It didn't matter if that, um, none of those leads ended up being anything, but it showed that I was proactive enough and that I knew what kind of stuff they were looking for, that I was on the right track to be trained in that genre. So then I think that's why they took the chance on me. And so once I got in my... Once I got my foot in the door for one show, then it was easier to segue. And once they, I was in there, they're like, oh, you've, you know, you've shot before, you've been on set, how about you do this? I was like, great, I'll go. So um, after the first couple episodes, then I would go out to you know, wherever they would send me on location to go and do the documentary interviews. So I would interview those, interview those subjects for five hours on camera and get the crime Five hours, eh? Yeah, I think that's, one of them was. Long. Well, I mean, they on crime shows they really become the narrative because if sure. you don't have a narrator, so you really feed them the lines to sort of. Uh, you, you wouldn't feed. You would sort of go, okay, now tell me again in a in a narrative line, so I can use this as a voiceover. So it was a lot of reasking kind of things. Yeah, so, I mean, the interviews can be yeah. very, very, very. Five tough. hours was maybe yeah. too long, but yeah, I think. Were there recreations in those yes. shows? So that's a whole other level yeah. of directing as well. Yeah. Because the reno shows or your factual, you know, they're, well, the reality ones, they're kind of set in the present tense. It's all That's happening right. and you can react to it. Whereas the recreations, you have to figure out what scenes you're going to do. Right. You have to obviously cast the talent. And now I never did the directing on those recreations, but I would like produce some of those recreations, yeah. you know, and so we would sort of take all that information and I, I've done some story editing as well on those. So where you take all of that and piece it together in the edit. But we, on those crime dramas, we often have um, sort of like the film directors right. come in and do those pieces. But then I would be sort of left with the footage anyway in the edit to kind of piece it together. And, and does it work that way? Does it? Yeah, I, it's an established, you know, flow for sure. I think, and I think sometimes I think more and more of those things come together to meet each other in the middle. Um, I, I, you know, and I think crime dramas are, uh, I went through a while where that was very like, 
very film blocked and sort of union sets kind of blocking to more like running a little more loose right um in terms of the feel of it and the look of it more impressionistic less dialogue for example so i think even that has you know come through and, and as you know the more you rely on the documentary interviews the more you don't necessarily want your on-camera talent your actors to say much because it's not as compelling so you go more impressionistic i've been noticing that yeah i think the key is yeah not to have the actors speak in those to let the voiceover or the the real person carry the narrative through and just have the visuals you know and like you say a little more abstract and i think that's it's interesting like i mean as a story editor those are some of the really minutiae stuff i don't know if anybody cares but i often think about <laughs> over my editors and i often overthink in the edit suite and it's i have to say it's one of my it's my favorite times actually it's really? where and it's silly because you know the viewers at home will never catch those things they'll never notice it but when you're working with great professionals in the edit suite you're you're firing on all cylinders you're really talking about the minutiae of five frames and whether that coming in after the music beat or just before will make that difference and you know the home you know the home viewer might never appreciate that but it'll feel good for them oh totally. and so for that you're gonna get it to you know that five frames before or five frames after um and so we're often talking about like in a moment, here's the scene, you know, and you would think you will always want someone speaking on camera and you don't because oftentimes their their voice is more powerful than their how they're saying it, you know, on their face. You may be distracted by the picture of them saying it because it's too close up, maybe it's out of focus. Maybe if it's not just troubleshooting, it's just they're not as there's not as much conviction on their face as their voice. So all of a sudden, if you put some B-roll on that, it's, you know, and they, they were really strong before, you cover that B-roll and you kind of go, yeah, I buy it, I get what he's saying, and the voice is more powerful, that you would just use the audio. There's, there's times where we've done fixes like that. And, right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite editor to work with? Like, do you have a partner that you like, this guy gets me, this guy or girl gets me? And Not really. I think, um, I think that's... That's one of the key that, you know, now I've been story editing for quite some time and I've worked with all different kinds of editors. Yeah. I will often say, like, and I, I work, and different story editors work different ways. There are some story editors that are, you know, very much do as I say. Like, you know, here's instruction and, you know, that's always a description of bad story editors. That, you know, maybe not, you know, they have some editors that they really expect them to be button pushers. I do not personally work well with editors that are just button pushers. And maybe some of that is old school because I come from a time when editors didn't have story editors. They are perfectly capable of putting a show together if they had more time. Right. That's where story editors really came into view was as they started shrinking the edit days available to put a half hour show together and an hour together. They go, well, I can't possibly build the show and the narrative on this in such a short amount of time. And so the industry said, well, we'll throw you a story editor, help you figure out the story of it. And so I think that's really how that role came to be, is as they started shrinking edit times for budget purposes, they put in a story editor to sort of bridge that gap. So, I mean, it used to be just series producers and an editor sitting together to figure out how to put a show together and figure out that narrative. So the story editor is new. And so I I don't have a favorite because I like I like working with editors that um, that bring is more collaborative. I think, you know, they have great ideas. I like the pushback to go, this is how I see it. What do you think? And I like them to I often work best with the ones who push back the most. Hopefully we have a respectful enough, you know, relationship to go you know, today it's, you know, today you win, next day I win, or, you know, when we come together and go, you know, I thought about the things that you said yesterday, and I didn't agree with it yesterday, but I get it now, or, you know, I, you know, it's that improv, you know, idea of, like, yes, and, okay, I get that note, yes, and I think we need a little more to flesh it out so that visually I can make that transition. So I find, you know, the ones that are collaborative are really helpful. I don't work well with button pusher <laughs> editors, I think. Really? That's, yeah. What kind of notes do you get? Well, first of all, who do you get notes from? I'm guessing the series producer will send you a round of notes. And network notes. And network. So just two batches? That's generally it? Well, it depends. I mean, sometimes if you're answering to two networks, then you get two sets of network notes. Do um, you guys have an executive producer or a show creator that isn't... Uh... So, I mean, I, different shows have different layers of right. notes, I think. you know, And I think my editors would say they would often get a lengthy set of notes from me as a story editor. So they will uh. sometimes have to address my notes. So from the editor's perspective, they get a set of notes from me. And then they get a set of notes from the series producer who may do one or two passes. It, it may not just do once. It might be multiple times. Um, and then 
executive producers will also weigh in with notes. That might be another level if that exists. Um, and then multiple networks will also answer notes. And sometimes it's, you know, it's two rounds of notes from a network. Sometimes it's one. It depends on the relationship. So um, sometimes they're really on a season one, your network executive may almost be producing the show because it's such an extensive process because everyone's trying to figure out what the format is and what that what that tone needs to be and you know what's the mechanisms that we can make the show different. And so season ones are often much more lengthy discussions and notes. And so it's ideal to budget like maybe, I don't know, like 18 rounds of notes before you expect to actually deliver that episode. So... You're talking about tone and format. Um, do you have sort of a general template that you work with? You know, teaser, opening sequence, act one is going to be this, that, two. On can, season, can you share something with the listeners? I think um, on season ones, never. Um, you try everything. Really? I, I mean, there's a Bible, and you often show that Bible version that you pitch to the network, um, in, and you show it to network. Um, so when and, you come on a show, you read the Bible. They give it to you. Let's say it's not your concept, but you're going to be the series producer. Are you going to read it that It gets Bible? downloaded to me either either in a Bible format or, you know, we had a a, a, pilot, a, a pilot or, you know, we had a, um, you know, a two-minute, uh, like, a, you know, a pitch. What do you call it? I think, you know, you, we had a demo. That's it. We had a yeah. demo. Um, and, and then you, on a season one, you're either inventing those things um, or you're trying to, the first pass, you're executing what, was, um, what the pitch was. And sometimes that doesn't work. Um, so you expect, and so I remember working on a show where um, they blocked off, maybe normally we would budget maybe a month for each offline. Episode one, they knew, so they planned three months yeah. to do that episode one and it made sense because here's what we had discussed here's what was here's what's delivered we hate it we hate it all we don't like anything <laughs> um so we sort of started to go back and reinvent the wheel a little bit so that you know interviews in between is not working so what do we need to change about that so you go okay if you work on a show that's well established like season three and four surely those things are set they might be set for season two, but you're always trying to up your game. Right. And so you're often trying to change those things. So, you know, for example, on Property Brothers, on various seasons, I think, you know, with different producers, you know, you always try to improve it. So, you know, we, we have biopacks for a long time. On buying and selling, they, we cut the biopack. We just lost it all together. Is that, will we sell it? Well, you know, now we need some other mechanism to get some of that information out. Okay, now let's, you know, create a new suggestion of a walk and talk off the top that might give us 20 seconds of that information which is all we need as opposed to a two three minute bio pack so all those things a seasoned show that's well into production will reinvent itself all the time every season to make it fresh and different and to improve um and then a season one show will just not have figured it out yet so you so the answer is no never <laughs> and hopefully if you're working on a team that has seasoned um leaders they'll go i'm up for any better solutions that you have and it will come so for example when we try to change some of those things it, the the really the source of those suggestions we we there was a problem and we're like ah this is bothering me this is bothering me and so everybody complained about it and then people started coming with once you open the floodgates to okay who has a better idea everybody does come with better ideas and you just sort of give them the time and give them the opportunity to go show me something better hey that works let's go with that and you execute but oftentimes that takes a seasoned producer to kind of go, yes, I'm open to new ideas to make this better. So any, any tips or advice for aspiring story editors? Uh, I think, you know what? I think I'm, I'm trying to jog back. How do you transition into story editing? And a lot of times, oh, my colleague just um, stepped from associate producing. I think story editing is an interesting one because you... Um, the, the paths to there are not clear. Um, and oftentimes it's um, people who come from set, so production side would step into story editing. So people who have a strong sense of story is really all you need. So Excel as research or Excel at you know, associate producing have a really 
clear sense of story is really usually the path to story editing. Um, but you know, have a good working relationship with editors and the post department is often the easiest way to showcase that you can do that. I think just you know working well with uh, editors and systems and sort of being you know aware to go oh what does the editor need just being having a working good working relationship is definitely a good stepping stone into story editing and oftentimes you know story editors are recommended by other editors as well they you know they really editors will recommend story editors to producers um, because they've had a good working relationship with somebody or they found somebody to be really helpful and there are lots of story editors that get blacklisted um, because I mean it's not blacklisted but you know strong sense of I did not have a good working relationship mm. with that person and I I like to think that anybody that comes with you know good ideas and helpful ideas um, would be appreciated by their editors you know whether it's and I, I don't I don't often think that someone's got a wrong idea just you know how you see it and that you know how why do you think that's a better way and it's a matter of the way you communicate is as much valued as the you know what you say do you give nice notes Yes. Do you open up with like something positive and then say, <laughs> the last 10 minutes is rubbish? I do. I think that's a great tip that's come down. Like, I, and I, you know, I take that inspiration from lots of people I've worked with is, you know, not just saying it to say it, but that, you know, sometimes we, it's easy to spot, you know, you think of your role as, you know, fixing something. And so this is a problem. This is a problem. But it's even in your own interest to say the thing that you love because you want to make sure that that doesn't get calm. Like that doesn't get cut for time is the thing that you loved about it or that, you know, riffing off of this great thing that you love. Like I I really love this opening. Can we just make sure it carries through a little bit, carry the music under a little bit, or let's let that moment hang a little bit or give it, breathing room let's not put another music track right behind it because that first track was so great i just want to have that you know ruminate in my brain as i enjoy that you know two minute biopack kind of thing and i mean again this is where i you sound are an expert at your job you I mean, really are it's, it's really it, it sounds really lofty and again people just watch these to go oh they're a nice family and ready to watch but the editors if you didn't put that thought into it there would be no experience for them on the other end you and you'd be surprised i mean the level of detail that you do is you know and it's it's really riffing off of the editors uh the story editors and editors really i mean they have the technical know-how but they are often they're equally you know instrumental in the music choices and the pace of each story going you know and it's and it's like and I watch a lot of West Wing, so I like to take from Aaron Stork too. There is a rhythm, you know. If everything is bang, 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 and right back to back, that has its function. But then you gotta let things breathe after. You gotta have a moment of, let's just enjoy some scenics and some B-roll. Is that too long? Is that too short? If you want the sound of something falling in situ to ring to have a real impact, you better have no music leading up to it because that's a punctuation. Or, you know, and these days we do less and less music um, tracks under you know, reality shows. As a style so, choice? Yeah, I, th- and I think that's top down. And it's just, you know, we it used to be where you use the music to drive, you know, this is a funny scene and here's a comedic right. track <laughs> and, you know, here is some bad news that's coming. And now I think we try to do less and less music pieces. So you use the music start and ending because it used to be wall to wall and now we do more when does a track end and when does a track start is actually way more important as to where it is because you're using the start of that music to accentuate something you're using where it ends to punctuate something because you don't do the record scratches anymore so it might just be dropping a piece of music right then and there to kind of really have something resonate but again nobody notices except maybe you or your editor but you know that that helps sell something even just by that 0.1 percent absolutely i get asked a lot how do i pick music for my videos it's something i love to do i know you love to do your music background any tips for somebody when they're picking i know this is a big question like what kind of video blah 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 i have to say as a story editor i and i'm often surprised by my own skill set at this is because when i first started i felt like Man, like I do not get music. And the first thing to say is music is very subjective. Yes. You know, what's liked or not liked by somebody is entirely subjective. So if everybody goes into that process going, you know, nobody made a wrong choice. It's just somebody didn't like it 
And so we have to change it up. Um, and I, I like to think, I like to start out with that tone. And that's true of edit choices. It's true of music choices. All of it is subjective, what feels good and what's natural. Um, and then often I, and now I focus more on when does the track start and when does the track end. So the placement of the music to me is more and more the more thing, the big thing I focus as opposed to the, the melody or um, the tone is the next thing I I would react to something that's too serious, something that's too, you know, uh, energetic and too frenetic. When the pace of the conversation is a slow intensity to it, then, you know, something that's too lighthearted or just too peppy is the inappropriate thing. So I, it's funny, I, it's not necessarily when I choose pieces of music, it's not necessarily um, a choice about, I like that song more than that song. When you like something, you really like something. Sure. It's And it's that thing where you don't know it until you hear it, what you like. Um, but having said that, it's often what's the most, in reality television and factual, it's definitely what helps serve the purpose the most. You know, So it's often variations in the tempo and the, how it drives, whether it's a driving piece of music that moves the scene along or something that's just, um, you're using it for a ring out. So something that's just to help you breathe at the end. So you need a long ring out of a note. Yeah. Um, a lot of my editors like to work with stems. So, you know, somebody composes a great piece of music, but you isolate it by instrumentation because it may be just that one banjo quirk that they've added into it that's really sticking out and not working. Right. So you can isolate that track out. So where do you find your inspiration and, and influence? You mentioned, mentioned West Wing. So you don't look to other factual shows. We do. Look, or do you do? I mean, I think... You, you often look, I mean, you, you either look at them as inspiration or you look at them as competition. <laughs> For both reasons, you watch everything that's out there. Yeah. Um, but I also find the best inspirations doesn't come from, it's good to be aware, it's very important to be aware of what everyone else is doing in your genre. Um, just have a sense of what's what's on trend and what other people are doing. Um, but I think it's really important to watch things that are totally not your show because then you'll get not your genre not your style not your scene um, because that's where you'll get inspiration into your shows it doesn't make sense to borrow and steal from other shows that's doing exactly the same thing but you know if you're watching a crime show and you get inspiration for a new way to do animation that's a good source or if you're watching a lot of dramas and you find a new way to introduce something that's different you know and that's just that doesn't just mean watching Canadian stuff it means watching American stuff British stuff online stuff and you kind of go okay what's BuzzFeed doing with their latest video and is that some new way to do graphics and you know comedic way to do graphics that might be interesting that our audiences might find palatable now what does the future hold for Dora um, what would you like do you think you'll progress do you you're a series producer now yeah so that's my you, I mean that's my next step that's a that's a progression do you have any show concepts that you think maybe one day you you want to pitch and not at this moment I think you know I I'm someone personally I feel like that excels um, at tweaking things at improving upon things uh, at collaborating with other people um, I, you know, I think there's, there's that personality test that you do at some point. And like, I'm not someone that has fantastic ideas, you know, out of thin air, but I feel like I'm someone that does innovate well and someone that in, you know, tweaks and yeah, innovate, I think is the word. How can I make this better? How can I make this stronger? What are the inherent problems in something like this that we need to try to resolve? And here are the suggestions to try to improve upon that. So I feel like Knowing my own personality, I'm not necessarily, you know, someone that has a great idea out of the blue that will create a new format and a new genre. But, but you know, I feel like if something's underserved or, you know, there's something great about one genre and another genre, then I may have my own idea. But I'm still getting my feet wet as a series producer, so I think I'm going to work on doing that well uh, in the near future. Well, Dora, this has been great. You've really shared some very insightful stuff. I really appreciate it. So great to reconnect with you yes. after all this time. So much has happened. We end each episode with a film or television term of the day. Oh. I give you the term. You tell me the definition. Oh, is it, is it a test or am I supposed well, to define it? No, it's it? just kind of like trivia. Okay. That's all it is. All right. And so far, I'm 5 and 0, oh, meaning I give the term. Yes. And none of the guests have known what the definition oh, is. Oh, I so. feel like I may be... Okay. And now you, you have you have some experience on set. You've been directing and everything, but you yes. haven't maybe had these on set. Okay. We'll see. Honey wagons. Ooh, ew. <laughs> I am okay. familiar. Yes, she breaks it. I am familiar with the honey wagon. And the context could be 
Uh, the talent is in the honey wagon. Yes. <laughs> you want to give the definition? Um, I, you know what? I'm not sure. I uh, there is there another? There's another co for that. They're on ten four, not ten four. Yeah. What's the? There's a walkie talkie code. One twenty or something. Yeah. There's oh, a walkie talkie code um, for when someone has to, you know, do number one or two. When they have to go to the honey wagon. They have to go potty. I say yeah. in my house, and you know, if someone has to go potty, so <laughs> and we all have to do that at some point. Uh, and it's so, only natural. It's going to happen at work. And in fact, it happens quite. I mean, on construction sites, it's particularly tricky because we often don't have working bathrooms. All right. So you, so you don't even bring your own... Yeah, because this, this house you're renovating, it doesn't have any bathroom. Yeah. Do you bring a honey wagon? There, there's a, a porta potty sometimes. I mean, that's really Just, where you end up. Um, and I think... Uh, I mean, but, uh, you know, our, uh, some talent will have their own, you know, RVs and stuff, so they will do Oh, that, nice. So, yes. Very, very nice. You're on the big shows now. Yes. Well, I think... And I, I mean, a number of shows have had that, but yes, I think that's... Uh, yeah, I don't know whether... I guess on a film set, they would just have... Uh, oh, it is a transport truck, like an 18-wheeler right. with like six or seven I've, I've different... seen those at the music festivals, yeah. I feel yes, like. Yes, something like that. Yes. Well, this has been great. That's it? Just That's one it. term? All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now I'm curious about what the other five were. Oh, oh, here's my favorite one. Okay. A Gary Coleman. Grab me a Gary Coleman from the truck. Oh. I feel like, is this going to be a racist term? No. <laughs> it's going to be a heightist term. It's a short C-stand. Oh, I have heard this one. Yeah, yes. Gary Coleman. That's All one right. of my favorites. I All thought right. that was funny. Well, this has been great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. See, I told you Dora has some great insights. And the best part is that she's so good at explaining it. You know, the craft and the, the whys behind what story editors and editors do. You know, the decisions they make while producing a show. And to follow up on the onset walkie-talkie lingo there that we were talking about... Um, you want to say 10-100 if you're going to the washroom. 10-100. So if somebody asks you over the walkie-talkie, what's your 20? That means where are you? What's your 20? You would say, I'm 10-100, which means you're in the honey wagon doing what one does there. Okay, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. And please make sure you rate and review us. We'd really appreciate it. And I'll see you next time.